We had a controversy about the Sabbath, where Christ himself gave us some Christology. I don't understand red-letter Christianity. That's this uh, kind of this movement, well, we believe in the red letters. and Because uh, if you really took what the red letters said... Um, it says he, he said he was Lord over everything. And the movement to say that he is not curious, that he is not that he is not that very same God of the Old Testament, that he is according to the scriptures, um, and Lord even of the Sabbath is contrary to what Christ taught. So, Mark chapter 2, we're going to, well, not, not Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 3. But that's how we ended chapter 2. And now Mark chapter 3, we have another Sabbath day controversy. One of six in the Bible, or in the, in the uh, New Testament. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he says unto the man which had the withered hand, stand forth. And he says unto, him, unto them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked around about them, about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So the Sabbath continues to be center stage now in this narrative of controversy. The Jews here for the first time decide they're going to have to kill Jesus. And this is just the third chapter of the 16th chapter. So this, this becomes apparent. And they even get united in this purpose with the political faction of Judaism, the Herodians, in order to begin to conceive of a way to do so. He had just declared himself that he is Lord. And I'm not sure... Many who've named the name of Christ really grasp what that means even still. But that is really the center of the controversy now. And he's added that to our, already to this recognized authority that he's the one that's able to forgive sins. And he has been preaching and teaching with authority everywhere he goes. And he's been proven that authority by signs and wonders. And they're going to have to deal with his authority. And how do they deal with his authority? We've got to kill him. We have to destroy this one. 
And that has been so since Psalm, the, pen, the words of Psalm 2 were penned, where he said, let us cast our, or they say, let us cast his fetters from off of us. Or they will later say, we will not have this man to be Lord over us. So we see the beginning of the germs that there among the Jewish people and the Jewish rulers. Let's talk about the setting as we'd always done. We're just going about this kind of verse by verse, word by word. And the setting is there in the very first verse. And he entered again, again into the synagogue. We're talking about a cycle that he's going through. He would be in the synagogue and then he would go back out into the corners and still and bring in a new, uh, a new revelation of himself. This time the revelation that he is indeed the Lord of the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath now again he comes into the synagogue. And there was there a man. And if we get into the synoptics, he went there to teach. And there was there a man with a withered hand. That's the setting of this. Mark does not give a time, but follows this with a declaration of his lordship, and all three synoptics do the same. So he declares he's lord of the Sabbath, and now he goes into the synagogue to teach. And this is the cycle of his teaching. He is now bringing to bear his doctrine into the synagogue, into the very center of the Jewish, Jewish nation's identity, he is now teaching there, and what is he teaching? Well, the very same thing he just taught. Luke indicates that this was a different day, where it says in Luke 6, 6, and it came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught. There as it was last time in the synagogue, a man not identified by any article in the Greek, just this unidentified man who had, was filled with a demon, and there he taught of his authority there over all things. And now, again, we have this other identified, unidentified man. We don't know much about him. The only thing we know about this man is he had an injury. And we know it was an injury. It was not a congenital thing because it is given to us in the perfect tense participle. He had or he had a withered hand. Uh, so the idea was is, is, that, is that this was not something that was a congenital issue. At some point through disease or through injury, this man was hurting. He had an injury sometime in the past or something that happened sometime in the past that was still presently there. He had a withered hand. He was without strength. Luke 6, 6 says it was his right hand. We think of, I immediately think there of Psalm 137, verse 5. Lord, if I forget Jerusalem, let my right hand forget his cunning. Uh, this idea that that was the hand of one's strength. That was, the, that, was, that, that was the power of the man. And here, this man had an injury that had left him without strength. This man was likely a regular, attend a regular attendee of this specific synagogue, but he was part of a deeper plot. He, well, he himself doesn't appear to be a part of it, but they knew Christ was coming. They knew this man was going to be there, or they ensured this man was going to be there. This may have been the very first time that Christ particularly visited this synagogue, but this left an opportunity, creating a sinister opportunity for them to tempt the goodness of the Lord. 
What do I mean by tempt the goodness of the Lord? They knew what kind of character Christ was. And it says here in verse 2, And they watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him. Matthew says they were even prompting him with questions. They asked a question in Matthew 12.10, And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? So this created this grand opportunity. This man, by the way, was not very important to these people. This hurting man, what was important to them? The Sabbath and the fact that this man, Jesus Christ, had just made a claim about his relationship to the Sabbath, that he was the Lord over it. That's what was important to them. The Sabbath day as an institution they believed to be so great that they had to muster together this sinister little plot in order to, a purpose clause there, in order to accuse him. To them, the Sabbath had an independent religious authority, contrary to what Christ has now proclaimed about himself, that he's Lord over it. And let me remind you all again, if Christ is Lord, there is nothing in your life or your practice that is independent of Him. There's no choice that you make and nothing you do that is independent of Him. It is under His authority. I want to remind you that's what it means when we say He is Lord. But they believed the Sabbath had an independent authority contrary to Christ's claims. And they were eager to prosecute that, that they might accuse Him. That has a very official ring to it, uh, that they might bring accusations against him, that they might accuse him of a crime or uh, some kind of blasphemy or something like that. They are, they are going about to do this. And this was an inhumane mockery of God's intent for the Sabbath. What did, you, what did Jesus just say was the intent of the Sabbath? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And we got into that last week. So it was an inhumane mockery. Here was this man, this hurting man, this man in pain, this man uh, in, in complete atrophy, having no strength, no ability to meet his own needs. And he's just a pawn in their greater schemes. Now, what were they watching for? They were watching to see if some kind of healing work would be done. Why? Because, according to their traditions, not according to the scriptures, but according to their traditions, a physician was not allowed to work as a physician on the Sabbath day. Meyer said the traditions forbade healing on the Sabbath except, except in cases where life was in danger. So they had this written tradition of the elders that came before him. This is what it means to keep the Sabbath. And, and if he goes about to heal, then he is doing the work of a physician. And therefore we can accuse him. A similar situation will later happen in Luke chapter 13. Where we have the woman that was bowed down. She was, she was almost in this crippled state. And he healed her. On the Sabbath day. Luke chapter 13 and verse 14, he says this. And the ruler of the synagogue answered, not he, but uh, Luke says this. 
the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work. In them therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. You see how this, is, this had been this tradition had taken over. Sabbath, the Sabbath was not for the hurting people. If you're hurting, continue to hurt until another convenient day comes and then you can find your healing. So they set up this trap here. And this trap is given to us. It says they closely watched him. They were watching in the imperfect. They were continuously watching. They were examining him every second. They watched him with no friendly purpose. The word gives us the idea of a stratagem as, as they watched to see if, uh, if Paul would come out of the gate so they can kill him in Acts chapter 9 or something to that. It, it's an idea. They were working out this strategy. They watched him. They were scrupulously with, purpose, with purposeful and personal interests interested in the outcome. They were gazing upon him. Why? Well, it's given to us in, a, in what would be called a first-class conditional sentence. This was their crafty plan. If it, we have an if-then-this uh, statement, statement here. So the protasis or the if clause is this, they wanted to see if Christ would heal during their holy day. This is an answer to the last incident. They knew, A, he had the power to heal. They knew, B, he had recently shown compassion on the Sabbath. And they believed that this would give opportunity to challenge what he had just said that he is Lord. If he healed on the Sabbath, then captured in a purpose clause with a subjunctive, they might be able to bring accusation against him. This is an opportunity here. Can't let this proper opportunity, or as some poli recent politician said, you can never let a crisis go to waste or something to that. You ne never let an opportunity uh, go past you. So, so they were looking and they were plotting for a way to condemn him. The same plotting is brought out in Luke, uh, Luke 6, 7. The same ideas are, are therefore in this, in this uh, story. And, and they were doing this, with, again, with categories of thought that are not derived from Scripture. Be careful. Whatever you believe that is derived from Scripture. Where did these categories come from? about the physician not being able to heal and all this that they came from man-made systems of worship. We always have to be on guard of those. That this is the way we do it. This is the way our fathers have done it. This is the way and therefore this is Christianity <laughs> or something to that effect. When it's not something that came from the scriptures itself. His doctrine of the Sabbath cannot in their minds stand. In order to defend their man-made faith, they carefully injured, engineered the setting in rebellion against their Lord using a human pawn. And people always become, real people always become pawns when something more important than what the scriptures actually say is brought forth. What do they want to do? They wanted to show that he is worthy of death. Why? Let's go back to what the Sabbath was. Exodus 31, hence they're going to go about trying to destroy him after this. 
Uh, but Exodus 31, 14 says, Ye shall keep the Sabbath therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defiles it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever does any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. That's some harsh stuff right there. If they're wanting to accuse him of Sabbath breaking, uh, this no doubt is exactly what they have in mind. The accusation would bring him before a tribunal and possibly a condemnation, at least, at least casting him out away from the people, if not killing him. But here's the thing. Our Lord, no one can convince him of sin. No one can convict him of sin. John 8, 46, so he says that very same thing. They willfully compound their own glory. What are they doing? They're tempting the Lord. Matthew gives the underlying doctrinal question. Is it lawful to heal? The purpose of Christ in the synagogue is to teach, and he is doing that very same thing. He is asking the question. And what before he does that in verse 3, what, what does he do by way of teaching is he presents to them the hurting man. We should always be ready to put human faces on our practice. Amen? I... I've, I sometimes think in, evangel, in evangelical churches and fundamentalist churches and things like that, we, we, are, we often fail to put human faces on people. Or on, it's all about numbers. It's all about uh, how much money are we, are we getting in the offering plate or how much, uh, how, many, how much of the pew space is being filled up. And, and we always need to be ready to put human faces on our practice. Little comment here is needed, though. Critic, uh, the text is in and of itself in the imperative. He says, stand forth. But what's he doing here? It's not about an institution of some, of some religious practice. This man's real. And his suffering is real. And the need for compassion was real. And... The need for healing was immediate. In context, if you'll turn over to Matthew 12, Matthew goes into a little bit more in depth. He places human value on the demands of the law. And he asks them a question. This is the same story. Matthew's just giving a little further information about what Christ was teaching. He says in Matthew 12, verse 11, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? Every single one of them. One of their sheep falls into a pit. It's the Sabbath day. They don't just cover the hole up and say, all right, I'll be back tomorrow to help you. They wouldn't let it bleep. Is that what it's called? Bleeping? Bleeding? They wouldn't let it bleat all night, waiting, or all day, waiting for the sun down. They would go into the pit, they would lay hold upon it, and they would drag it up. And he's putting value on something. He says, 
people are worth more than sheep. Amen? Luke says, in this same context, that he said all this because he knew their thoughts. He knew what they valued, piety over people, accusations above compassion, all of that brought out here. He shows them the real need they had had was overlooked by their faulty faith. Thus the same lesson is brought out. We remember the, 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 the same similar lesson there in Luke chapter 13 about the, the, about the woman that was bowed over. And in Luke 13, 15, he says something very similar. And I don't have it written down, so I'll just have to read it to you. 13, 15, where he says, In that instance, for I... That's John. No wonder it looks weird. Uh... 13, Luke 13. It says, Luke 13, 15. He says, Thou hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath day loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to the watering? You'll provide what your animals are, need, are needing. You'll lift the sheep up from the, from the pit if they fall, all on the Sabbath. Why? Because you have compassion on your animals for whatever value you believe they have. But here, you care more about the Sabbath day observance than you do this man that's hurting. Or in Luke 13, this woman who had been bound. There is value that is being sinfully ignored by a legalistic faith that holds the day to be greater than the man. The beast to be greater than the man, and so on. Christ places this value before their eyes. He says, stand forth. We must teach those who seek fault but do not see need. And he asks the question. And he says, says unto them, Is it lawful to do on the Sabbath, day, Sabbath days, to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life or to kill it? But they held their peace. His question, he answers actually in Matthew, where he says, after he talks about the sheep and the pit and the value of the, the value of the man over the sheep, he says, then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So the question, the, the answer is not, is not left unanswered in this setting. But what does the law say? The law is not self-contained. The law is not self-serving. It does not exist simply to boast in its compliance. For instance, the Bible says, Thou shalt not kill. That command does not exist simply for me to make it through the day without killing anybody, which I've done, today at least. And then to boast, well, look at me. I didn't kill anybody. Let me boast. See, no, no, no law is self-contained. The law has a purpose. What's the purpose of thou shalt not kill? The love of the person. The care of the person. Even down to the care about their reputation by not slandering them and cutting at them. See, the law is not self-contained. It's not just there for us to boast, ooh, look at me, I kept it. The law has deeper purpose.
purpose than self-fulfillment. It's not a thing, it's not a list of compliance. It's personal, it's relational, and it's outward facing. What do I mean by outward facing? It's directed towards something and someone outside of yourself. You have, we have to realize that about the law. I, I would really love at some point in my life to get into what, how does the law relate to the Christian at some point. But, uh, and I've been wanting to do that for a very long time. But just, just, in, just in, in passing, I wanted to make this point clear. It's personal, it's relational, it's outward facing. And there are two types of relationships it encompasses. Vertical and horizontal. Toward God, vertical. Toward man, horizontal. The first table, you all know what I mean by the first table of the law. What's the first table of the law? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul. It's pointed toward God, right? First table, or maybe the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, but really you can, sum, you can sum up all the law in either the first or second table, and all of it really encompasses the first table, and the second table is, is, is encompassed in that. But the first table, to love, the, love God with all your heart, what's the second table of the law? What's the second greatest commandment? All right. And how many times has it been told us in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, that this encompasses all the law and all the prophets, everything they said, it's all outward facing. All of it. I lost my place. Christ addresses this in the same way. First, our relationship with God. Is it lawful to do good or to do evil? What is he saying here? These are the ultimate ethical or moral categories. What is good and what is evil is that what is good and evil before the eyes of God. Before him, based upon him, either conforming to his nature, what he revealed of himself in glory and honor to him, or rebelling against that. Everything you do is doing one or the other, right? Today you woke up, you're doing good or you're doing evil. How do you know? Well, you know based upon what God has revealed of himself. Then there's the outworking of that. He says, he says is it lawful to do good or to, or to do evil on the Sabbath day? And then he, makes, he gets to the second table, the outworking of that. In light of God's law, to save a soul... Or to destroy it. Now we get the outward facing, the human facing, the the, the horizontal plane of the law. And by the way, there's no neutrality in this. There's no neutrality at all in this, in these categories. All that we do is either conform to God and life giving to others... Or it is evil towards God and therefore destructive to our neighbor. One cannot claim, well, I'm obedient to God and be indifferent to people. That's what these people are doing. We're keeping the Sabbath. Look at us. 
he said this about the Sabbath. We'll see if he's going to do this. And they were indifferent to the person. Were they doing good? Of course not. When it comes to doing good, um, James chapter 4, we talked about it when we were going through James. Um, he says, for him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is evil. To him it is sin, right? What was that all about? Conforming to God's will. Okay, so there, there is no neutral ground. One cannot claim obedience to God's law and complete indifference to the lives of others any more than they can care about the lives of others and be indifferent to God. To know to do good and not to do it is evil. When this matter of the true nature of God's revelation struck their consciences, how did they react? I feel like I've been longer up here longer than I have. I've still got nine minutes to finish. They were silence. And it's very interesting here. The word translated silence, or they, how, how does it say it here? Um, they held their peace. Um, carries this idea that it was done so involuntarily. They wanted to say something, but they couldn't. They were hushed. You ever see a, you ever see a mom do that with her kid? Hush. Quiet. <laughs> the kid wants to keep talking. But they were, they were silenced. All mouths will be stopped. All our excuses, all these things, they will go away. They, 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 they will stop. Think, I think here of the... Um, of some of the things Christ had said said before in judgment, these ought you have to ought you ought you to ought you to have done in Matthew twenty three and Matthew twenty five. He talks about uh, when as as I was in prison, as I was uh, as I was hurting, as I was hungry, as I was thirsty, uh, and, and all these things you came unto me, and they said, when as much as you've done this, at least to my brethren, we're getting into some ground about judgment here. The doctrine was taught. The doctrine was rejected. Here, we're going to have to deal with something here in verse 5. And when he had looked around on them with anger. See, before they would not promote the rest of the hungry disciples, and now they wouldn't promote the health of the hurting on the Sabbath. Not being truly godly, they couldn't be truly humanistic either. And that's the way of all that forget God. Christ answers their question by saving the life of the man. But when he does so, he does something else first. There's a participle here. It's a temporal participle. And that's what... We have, it says, and we get the idea of after he had looked around about them with anger and then he healed them. What's going on is deeper than just the act of the saving of this man. The living word of God by works is condemning the sin of his people. The books were being opened. Mark draws this out 
in a way that Luke does not. This idea that he was looking around them in anger is very particular to Mark. Luke mentions him looking around upon them. And Matthew does not mention the looking around at all. But there was something prior to the command. Now, just the deal, just real quick, let me say something about the healing. Um, uh, prior to commanding the hurting man to stretch forth his hand, that's something he could not do. He had no ability to stretch out his hand. It was done so only by faith. Prior to the man doing so by faith and prior to that same man being restored, a passive uh, verb, by the saving authority of the Lord, we have... Lord, I mispronounced. The saving of the Lord, we have this temporal participle. He looked at them with anger. By the way, there was no means here. He said, stretch forth your hand. He did not touch them. He did not say, be healed. It's a miracle without external means, not even a word. What were they going to accuse him of? This makes some people uncomfortable, though. What do you think about a Christ that's angry? See? <laughs> Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Does me. But here we have it. And some people will even read this and ascribe sin to Christ. See, Christ is angry. He's sinning right here. Cease from anger, Psalm 37. But they're forgetting who Christ is. He's Lord. He's Kyrios. And it's the prerogative of God to be angry with sinners. Don't, don't throw stuff. I'm just telling you. Don't throw anything at me. Right. Yep. Angry, especially with their position. But the prerogative of God. Psalm 7, 11. The Lord is angry with the wicked every day. And by the way, a holy and righteous God is angry with your sin. A holy and righteous God is angry with your sin. Just like he was angry with her sin. I would not, would you, wouldn't you imagine a God that's not troubled, angered at the sinful things that happen? I, I love reading Dostoevsky and, his, and the atheists there uh, in the Grand Inquisitor chapter of the Brothers Karamazov says, uh, talks about all these evil things that are happening to children. Can you imagine a God that is indifferent Oh, well, case sera, sera. That's not our God. Here was these people who had hardened themselves in sin. Can you imagine a God not angry at sin? I'm glad I have a God that's angry at sin. But what is this? What is this? It's the foreshadowing of final judgment. It's the foreshadowing of final judgment. He declared himself Lord, the responsibility of men in Psalm 2. Let's get, let's get going back to who the Son of Man is. Psalm 2, the one that, Christ, that, that the Lord has set upon the throne. 
He says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And what does it say? Kiss the son. Psalm 2. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish. Blessed are all they that trust him. That's the son of man. Amen? The son can be angered. Why? It is because he is the only source of blessing and all judgment has been given to the son. To crush with a rod of iron, still in Psalm 2, all who resist God and his Christ. That's Psalm 2 in a nutshell. But the anger had a cause, introduced by another participle, this time a cause clause. Why was he angered? He was angered because he was grieved. This was not an unsympathetic anger. Here's what we got to know about God. We already know it. Ezekiel 33, 11. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not pleased when a man hardens his heart against the Lord and goes on. But here they are. Here are people that say they keep God's law. People who claim to be God's people and just like Pharaoh, hardened their hearts. And filled up the measure of their fathers who hardened their hearts in the day of provocation in the wilderness, Psalm 95.8. And now we're in a position of judgment whereby he would say in John 12, he says, let this people's heart wax gross or hard, lest they believe under the judgment now. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, after the hardness and impenitent heart, they treasure up wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. We see here the parallel with another healing on the Sabbath where, the, where, where there at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, uh, Christ makes explicit connections that Mark is just touching on here with just he looked upon them with anger and then healed the man. But in John chapter 5, this, this, this ends up being kind of the quintessential statement about the Sabbath-breaking accusation. John 5, starting in 25, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Verse 27, And the Father hath given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. He is the promise of Psalm 2. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which they all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, and they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. All the judgments given to the Son. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. The reason Christ is grieved is apparent. They left, verse 6, and what did they do? Did they repent? No, no repentance here. 
Did they confess him to be the Lord? Did they kiss the son? No. Now, it's a little unclear sometimes when you're comparing the synoptics. You get the idea in one synoptic that, that the Herodians were there. But then you get an idea in the other synoptic that the Pharisees kind of like, well, the Pharisees led this conversation. They left there and they said, we got to get a bigger coalition. <laughs> so they went to the Herodians, strange bedfellows. Why? Who are the Rhodians? Well, here's the, here's the Pharisees. They are paras. They are obligated to the law. Here's the Herodians. Licentious, evil, excessive, but very political. Why are they called Herodians? Because they were the consorts of Herod. They were connected to the political power. They were lobbyists, <laughs> if you would. They're the same ones that would later ask Jesus the question about, the, should we pay taxes to Caesar on the day of questions? Here they build a larger coalition. We can't do this alone, Herodians. we got a problem. But we see here that there is no room for Christ either in among the religious or among the political. If Christ is Lord, it disturbs the political just as much as it does the politically minded, just as much as, as it disturbs the religiously minded. We want to be Lords. We want to say what is important. We want to establish the values we want over all these things. But the scriptures only tell us to repent. Trust Christ. Submit to him as your Lord. Confess him as your Lord. If Christ is Lord, it disturbs the political and religious order. But ultimately, he must reign. His throne must be set. And the one who has eyes of fire will one day look upon every man. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. Blessed are all they that trust him. Let's, let's uh, stand and we'll, let's uh, sing the uh, Christ is all I need again. But the invitation's open. I don't know if someone's ears might be lost. If so, we would love to open up the Bible and show you how you can, like the old Puritan said, close with the sun, come to the sun, Find salvation in the Son, because there is no salvation in any other. We'd love to open up the Bible, and we'll set aside our meeting for a little bit and go into another room and talk to you as long as we need to about Christ. Come to one of us, and we'll, we'll do so.